Ready. Hello, class. This is your Professor Debbie. Welcome to True Crime University, where we have intellectual discussions about crime. This is a class for mature audiences with mature language. Our purpose is to learn about criminals, not glorify them. All the information I have is from public sources. This episode is actually a do-over of three episodes that I put out back in April and May, I think. And I listened to them recently, and I was like, oh my god, do those sound awful. The audio quality was so bad. I I don't know what the problem was. I think it was equipment. You can hear Nathan barking. It was embarrassing. And I thought, I should do this over. I owe it to the listeners now that I have a lot more of Yin's and especially to the victims. Now, I assume that Yens have already read the title of the episode. So you know who we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about Lonnie Franklin Jr., also known as the Grim Sleeper. And he was active in what they call the South Central area of Los Angeles in like the 80s and 90s, and a little bit of the 2000s. So first... I have to give you a little bit of a history lesson on this area. At the time these murders started in the 80s, this section of Los Angeles, South Central, was going through some difficulties, and we'll get into that, but a lot of the victims and their families had a less than favorable view of the police, and that will figure in this story. Everybody knows by now, I assume, that I'm a retired law enforcement officer, so I don't like to, or actually I won't, I refuse to, discuss police in either good or bad terms. I hate politics. I hate to talk about politics. I don't want to be, you know, associated with any types of politics at all, but unfortunately, it's going to come up in this case. So, when I have to address it, I'm just going to stay as neutral as possible. And everybody knows me or should know me. I never and will never disrespect victims or their families. Since I was in law enforcement, I know some things about how we operate that the average person probably doesn't. So I have the ability to explain some things that were going on at the time that wasn't probably visible or that people didn't know. And we always have the uh, benefit of hindsight. This was how many years ago? The 80s. Uh, I don't know what, 30? I can't do math. So it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback and say, this should have been done, that should have been done, and blah, blah, blah. And the main purpose, of course, as I've said how many times, is education, I'm sure, you know that. And fortunately, we do know something about each of the victims in the case, so we can learn something about them, which I always like to talk about. And at the end, of course, I will put forth my theories on why Mr. Franklin chose to kill people. And 
Unfortunately, that's all we have is theories because he never admitted to any of his crimes. So all we can do is guess. Now, the main source I used for this was a book. And as far as I know, it's the only book, or it's definitely the best book if there are more than one. But it's by Christine Pelisek, and it's called The Grim Sleeper, The Lost Women of South Central. And at the time this was going on, she was a reporter in Los Angeles. And she's the person who, if you want to use the phrase, broke the story. She talked to the police, the victims' families, people in the community, and she got like the whole scoop from everybody. So Thanks to her that we have such a full picture of what these victims were like. And it's a great book for anybody interested in this case. It is on um, Kindle. So with that said, Lonnie David Franklin Jr. was born on August 30th, 1952. His mother, Ruby, was from Texas and his dad was Lonnie Franklin Sr. He grew up in the South Central, kind of lived there all his life. He had a younger sister, Patricia, and an older half-brother named Otis. His dad worked as a longshoreman. His mom would sometimes uh, worked as a hairdresser. He was said to be pretty much of a normal kid. Wasn't a very good student. Always struggled in school. And quite stupidly, he got kicked out of school two weeks before he would have graduated. Got kicked out for fighting two weeks before graduating. So, um, not real bright, as we're going to see. And before we get real into him and his crimes, I want to tell you a little bit about South Central Los Angeles. Because it's, it's going to be almost like its own character in this story. In 2003, City Council of Los Angeles decided to rename it South L.A., they said that it had a stigma associated with it. I don't know if they thought that taking away the central in the name would reduce the crimes. I don't know if it worked or not, especially in the 80s and 90s. The area is located at the junction of the 110 and 105 freeways, and it encompasses 25 different neighborhoods. By 1940, 70% of the black population of Los Angeles had, for whatever purpose, congregated in the corridor surrounding Central Avenue, which would constitute the area that we're going to talk about. And one of the main streets in this neighborhood is Western Avenue, and you're going to hear that name a lot as we go on. In the 70s, 1970s is when the problem started in this area. Anybody old enough to remember the 70s, we had the problems of unemployment. This is kind of all over the country, but it really hit this area hard. Unemployment, inflation, poverty, street gangs, you know, like Bloods and Crips started to arise. Then around 1981, crack cocaine made its debut. And as legend has it, this is the area that it started. If you don't know anything about crack, let me give you a quick little lesson because it's another important ingredient in this story. It is a form of cocaine, you know, the powdered stuff that you snort. Well, I don't, I don't snort and probably you don't snort, but you know what I mean, that people snort 
It's a different chemical formula of it. It's said to be easier per to produce and cheaper to buy. And it's called crack because when you light it, and it, it kind of sizzles. It sounds like Rice Krispies going like crackle, crackle. Thus, the word crack. And it's also more addictive than the powdered form of cocaine. It gives you a very quick rush and a high. But the downside of that is that you have a fast crash. And that leads you to need more crack sooner. So you go through this cycle um, because it's such a cheap drug, well, I guess cheap as drugs go, it's popular with poor people. And this so-called crack epidemic was when Lonnie Franklin was at his most active. And he might have been stupid, but he had street smarts and he took advantage of the crack epidemic and the rise in sex work that came with it. So all of these socioeconomic factors, street workers, drug addicts, homeless, people easily preyed upon, he took advantage of all of these victims, all of these people that were easily victimized. His own criminal behavior began when he was 16, when he was arrested for grand theft auto twice, and a burglary. I have no details at all about the burglary. His talent, as we will see, was always fixing things, especially cars. He was actually in high school before he got kicked out. He was in one of those, today we call them vocational programs. So you go to your classes in school and then you get on a bus and you go to another school and you do a trade like welding or whatever. Well, he went to something similar and the trade he was learning was auto repair, you know, mechanics. And he was supposedly very good at it. He used to fix cars for gang members for extra money. His first legitimate job was as a bagger. I think maybe in those days they called it a boxer at a grocery store. And I think you can use your imagination to picture what that was when you pay for your stuff. They put your shit in the bags. So in 1971, he joined the army. In 1972, he was shipped off to Stuttgart, Germany. And it was here that he would have his first serious offense. Or one that he got caught for, one that we know of. On April 17th of 1974, Lonnie and two of his fellow soldiers were driving about town in a Fiat when they happened upon a 17-year-old girl. Her name is just given as Ingrid. And she was walking home from her boyfriend's house to a train station. So the three of them pull up and they asked her for directions. They offered her a ride. Unfortunately, she got in. So they proceeded to drive to a field where they took turns gang raping her at knife point. And she remembers that she saw a flash. And it finally dawned upon her that one of them had taken a picture, like maybe a Polaroid, of her being assaulted. Guess which of, of the three wackos that was. And that's going to come up later on. They drove her home, and she had a really bright idea. She asked Lonnie, I don't know why him, if she just, I don't, I don't know why him, but 
fortunately, it was him. She asked him for his phone number. She pretended to be interested in him. So the dumb little horny bastard that he was gives it to her. So Ingrid told the police and they set up a little sting operation. She called Lonnie and he's probably like all excited like, oh, she likes me. She wants to meet me. And they arranged to meet at the train station and she was to signal when Lonnie approached her. Which she did. She the signal was to drop a handkerchief. So she drops her handkerchief, and as if on cue, all of the German police jump out and arrest Lonnie. And I would love to see the look on his face, wouldn't you? That was probably just priceless. It later came out that 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 earlier that same night, the three soldiers had attempted to kidnap an 18-year-old girl, but she screamed, and somebody called the police and scared them away. So, Lonnie served less than a year in, I don't know if whether it was like army prison or German prison, I don't know what it was. The other two got four years each. I cannot explain that. Years later, LAPD Detective Darren Dupre said, quote, We don't know why he got out. The other guys did their whole time. He got caught and got away with it, and he came back here. And he started getting girls again. But as soon as they showed hesitation or gave him a hard time, he killed them. Any inkling of him getting caught or them treating him bad, he killed them. End quote. And police didn't find out about this until well, he certainly wasn't going to volunteer this, this tidbit. All they found out was when he was finally arrested years and years later. They were searching his house and they came across his military papers and this was in those records. So we're going to discuss the murders as they occur, just like the police found them. I'll tell you about the victim, where and how they were found, and etc. Then we'll go over how he was caught, which is a really fascinating story in and of itself. In his trial, and I have some tapes of him being interrogated that I want you to hear. I can't play them all because it'll take like an hour, but I really want you to hear clips of them to illustrate certain points that I want to make, and then we'll finally, we'll discuss his psychology. So the first victim was Deborah Ronette Jackson. She was born in 1956. She had three kids. When she was 19, her and her kids moved to Los Angeles to take care of her grandmother, who was then in her 80s. And Deborah just decided to stay there. She was said to be a dedicated parent. She took her kids to fun places. I'm sure there's lots of fun places around Los Angeles. Beach, Disneyland, etc. But unfortunately, she fell into drug use. And she would eventually lose custody of her kids into foster care. But they didn't move too far away. And they missed their mother. And they ran back to her. And Deborah said to, to them... Eventually, I will get yins back. She probably didn't say yins because, you know, California. I don't know what they say in California. You? I don't know. She worked as a cocktail waitress at a nightclub called the Elegant Chateau in Inglewood. And she was studying cosmetology. She lived with her girlfriend or partner, Beatrice, 
in Beatrice's apartment. In August of 1985, they had a fight. Beatrice's wallet went missing, and she blamed Deborah. So they got into it, and Deborah left. On Saturday, August 10th, her body was found laying against a wooden fence in an alley near Vermont Avenue, and her body was partially hidden under a red rug. She had a green nightgown draped over her abdomen. She had on jeans, a purple sweater, but no underwear. Her body was puffy, and it looked like she had been beaten up. Now, unfortunately, her murder was overshadowed by one that got more publicity. You may recognize the names of the victims. Del Okazaki and her roommate, Maria Hernandez. They live not too far away. And they happened to be murdered by some asshole named Richard Ramirez, who was also called the Night Stalker. So the officers assigned to Deborah's murder noted that she had been shot three times in the chest with a twenty-five caliber pistol. She was shot at a downward angle, so close to her skin, that she had gunshot residue in her wounds. Her autopsy showed that she had alcohol and a trace amount of cocaine in her system. Because of the advanced decomposition, they couldn't tell if she had been sexually assaulted. Her purse was found under her head, but there was no ID in it. But there were some phone numbers written down that the police were able to call, and they got hold of her sister, Michelle, who identified Deborah. So on August 12th, they went to see Beatrice, you know, her girlfriend, and they actually showed her a picture of Deborah's body, which was kind of rude. And they're like, did you kill her? And Beatrice is quoted as saying, quote, by the time they were done talking to me, they almost made me feel like I did it, unquote. So they asked her to come down to the station, and they said, uh, we have evidence that you have a gun and that you have been abusive to Deborah in the past. And they gave her a polygraph. They told her it showed deception. But if you know about polygraphs, they can pretty much tell you anything. Or, or back in those days, anyway. So they really weren't very nice to Beatrice. And of course, we know that, that she didn't kill her. We know who did. Deborah's kids went to Massachusetts to live with Deborah's mom. The next victim is Henrietta Wright. She was 34. She was the mother of five. She was born in Mississippi in 1951, and she was one of 11 kids. So that's a lot of kids. When she was two, her family moved to Los Angeles for better opportunities, as a lot of people did in those days. You know, since the gold rush in the 1840s, the West and California were seen as like the land of opportunity. Her dad was a construction worker and her mom was a house cleaner for rich people. Unfortunately, her dad left and her mom and all 11 of her kids had to live in public housing in Watts, which is a really poor section of Los Angeles. Her mother died at age 36 when Henrietta was 15. Henrietta worked at a school cafeteria, and then she worked at night as a cocktail waitress at a place called the Melody Room. One of her hobbies was playing pool. She was really good at this, and she was actually in tournaments, and she even won trophies. Sadly, her house on Central and 78th burned down, and she literally lost everything. So she moved in with one of her sisters, and I guess she was depressed which, of course, she would 
you would be depressed if your house burned down and you lost everything. So she turned to drugs. Her niece Irene said, quote, When crack came out, I was a teen. I could see the devastation in the community. People you know were losing their houses and cars. You knew the girls were turning tricks to do drugs. I would see women late at night when I was working a graveyard shift, and I'd see girls hanging on the streets pulling down cars. I had classmates that got on the drugs. They think they can control it, but it controls them, unquote. And she's right. Um, they think they can control it, but they're wrong, unfortunately. Research has found that drug and alcohol abuse is hereditary, so it does have a genetic com component. I think people tend to be genetically predisposed to addiction, and that's addiction of any kind. Like, do you ever hear of the, of the term addictive personality? It only makes sense that your brain is tricked into thinking that it literally needs this substance, like crack or whatever it is, gambling, whatever, in order to survive. So Henrietta, like a lot of people who get addicted, you know, drugs, like everything, cost money. So she started to steal things in order to get drugs and drug money. So she stole Irene's husband's guns, and he was said to be furious, which of course is understandable. Henrietta soon found herself kind of moving around. Motels, sisters, friends, places, etc., she went missing at some point in the, of, in the middle of the night, and her body was found on Tuesday, August 12th at 11.20 a.m., much like Deborah. She was found in a littered alley known as a hangout for homeless people. Does this sound familiar? Her body was partly hidden under a mattress and a blanket. She was wearing a polo shirt and shorts, but her shorts were unzipped, and she didn't have any underwear. Now, if you're paying attention, you'll notice that this is the second person found without underwear. One, as a, okay, some people don't wear underwear, okay. But two, I'm thinking he's keeping them as souvenirs. That's my theory, and we'll talk about that later. Part of a man's shirt was stuffed into her mouth, and police theorized that this was to keep her quiet. She had blood across her mouth and cheeks and in her ear and nose. She'd been shot twice at close range with 25 caliber bullets. Of course, they did a talk screen as part of her autopsy, and they found that she had cocaine, morphine, and codeine in her blood, which is a pretty odd combination. She was identified from fingerprints that they had on foul, and the police found and informed her sister later that night. Her sister said that the night before, at about 2 o'clock in the morning, she saw Henrietta talking to somebody in a car. Couldn't tell if it was a male or female driving or anything about the person. The car pulled away and Henrietta followed on foot. On August 29th, the police learned that the bullets from the gun that killed Henrietta were a match to those that had killed Deborah. Now, around this time, there were a lot of murders going on in this area. And Deborah and Henrietta were just two of many. People in the community started to take notice and, of course, weren't very happy about it. They didn't think that the police were doing their part. So activists started to picket outside the LAPD's downtown headquarters. They said that the police didn't care about the murdered women because they were mostly poor, black, 
drug users, and or sex workers. The leader of these people was Margaret Prescott, a black community activist from Barbados. The police, needless to say, weren't real pleased with this, and the police chief at the time, Daryl Gates, called Margaret Prescott and her cohorts asinine, and he said, quote, They're insensitive to the men who are working this case. Those dummies should be applauding them instead of casting a negative light on the investigation. We care about human life. We don't care about what they are or who they are, end quote. Uh, he could have worded it more politely, definitely, but he did have a point. The police at the time were dealing with, it was later found out, that there were four separate serial killers at work at that time. Not counting people killed by pimps or relatives or even like ODs or natural deaths or suicides. Some of the cops were working 14-hour days. So they may have been disorganized or I think what it was, I mean, of course, I'm playing Monday morning quarterback. I think they were just overwhelmed. So... On March 20th of 1986, Margaret Prescott's group, they called themselves the Black Coalition Fighting Back Serial Murders, had a candlelight vigil for all of the murder victims in the area. They wanted the FBI to get involved, which they eventually would. Margaret Prescott herself is quoted as saying, quote, We thought that there was a law enforcement connection. If he wasn't a cop, then some of the cops knew something. A lot of people in the community felt that way, end quote. She was supposedly getting crank calls. She suspected that a cop was following her, and she started having members of her coalition stay with her because she was afraid that the LAPD was, like, out to get her. She got mixed reviews. Some people were fans. Some applauded her. Others, not so much. Chief Gates made the statement, quote, A human being is a human being, and a murderer is a murderer, and we do our very best in every case, end quote. They did ask the FBI to help them out, as I said, and the FBI took a look at all their case files, and, and they said, there's no way this is the work of just one person. There's too many types of victims, MOs, etc., etc., and this is when they figured out that there had to be at least four. There was a mess going on in South Central L.A. at the time. And I think the police were doing the best they could. Now is a good time to introduce to you a term. This is a good law enforcement term to learn. And it can also be applied to other areas. There's something called misfeasance and there's something called malfeasance. Misfeasance, and I'm just going to use the police as, as an example. I'm not saying that, that they're, they were doing any, anything wrong, but this is just an example. Misfeasance is when you are a fuck-up. Like, for example, the police are, and you know I'm making this up. Somebody goes speeding by, obviously speeding or committing some other crime, and the cop wants to finish his donut, so he doesn't act. Okay, that's just being lazy. Malfeasance is purposefully, and, and purposefully is the key word, actively doing something wrong, like, uh, and I'm just making this up again, killing a suspect while you're arresting them. I'll talk about anybody in particular, but I think you get my drift. Okay, 
you've, you've gone from just being lazy to now you are a bad cop. Now you're bad. The same can go for a doctor or any other kind of like a professional that it, it you usually see the term used in law enforcement. So know the difference between misfeasance and malfeasance. Laziness versus intentional wrongdoing. Here, I'm seeing misfeasance. I'm, I'm seeing just um, kind of a con confusion, a mess, disorganization. And this was several, I mean, we're talking a while ago. So today the police are much better equipped to deal with, also the FBI, to deal with things like this, you know, how serial murders operate. I think in those days, profiling was in its infancy. DNA was in its infancy. So I think if Lonnie Franklin operated today, he wouldn't get away with it for very long. I think that, that he would be caught much sooner. So on the early morning of January 10th of 1987, the dispatcher at the LAPD received an anonymous call, and I have a recording of that, so I'll play it for you, and here it is. You threw a gas tank on top of her, and, uh, and uh, the only thing you can see out is her feet. What's your name? Oh, I was at the nominee. <laughs> I don't know too many people. Okay, then, bye-bye. Got -bye. to drop the office driving a white and blue Dodge van. Years later, the task force found this anonymous call, and they thought that maybe the killer had made the call. So they asked various people if they recognized the voice, and nobody did. But try to keep his voice in mind, or what he said in mind, because we are actually going to hear his voice later. And I want to see what you think about, do you think it's him? At the time that this occurred, in January of 1987, officers responded to this call about 12.30 in the morning, and it was an alley, and sure enough, there was a female body partially hidden under a pile of boxes, bags, etc. She was face down, and her head and body were halfway inside of a plastic garbage bag. There was a gas tank from a car, like the caller had said, on top of her like kind of pinning her legs to the ground. Her shirt was pulled up as with the other victims and her mouth and nose were smeared with blood. Her eye was swollen shut. As with all the other victims, she had no ID on her and they had to call her Jane Doe for the time being. Remember that the tipster gave the license number of the van. So of course they run the license number, and find that the van is registered to a church called the Cosmopolitan Church, which was pretty close to the site that the body was found. So the police go to the church, and even though it's after midnight, there's people there. They were having some kind of overnight event, and they questioned all the people and tested their hands for gunshot residue, and nobody had any police said, where do you keep the keys to the van? And they said, well, in so-and-so's desk drawer. And they figured it would be pretty hard for somebody to access these keys and take the van. So I'm thinking Lonnie Franklin is a mechanic. I'm sure he would know how to hotwire a car. And this was in 1987. I don't think you can do that to cars today. But back then, I'm sure that that's what he did. So the fingerprints on the body identify her as Barbara Ware. She was 23 
and her dad, Billy, was known as the Mayor of Florence Avenue. He was real popular in the, in the neighborhood, and he even kind of hobnobbed with celebrities. She was his second child. He had been married three times, and Barbara, who the family called Beth, was 12 when her mother died. She supposedly started acting out then, but can you think of a 12-year-old who doesn't act out? I know I did. She went to chores or her homework. She wouldn't go to church. She got into fights in school, and she was expelled from school twice for fighting. Once, her dad beat her with a belt, and she called the police on him. So the police came, and they said, um, don't do that, sir. Please don't beat your child with a belt. When she was 13, she got into a fight with another girl at a roller rink. For high school, she went to Texas and lived with her grandmother. She got pregnant at 16, had a daughter named Naomi. Then she went back to Los Angeles, where, unfortunately, she started using drugs, and she got arrested for theft. In 1982, when she was 18, she was arrested for prostitution. By her early 20s, she was pretty bad into drugs, and her stepmom took care of Naomi for her. Now, Beth smoked something called Sherm, which I have never heard of. It's either a cigarette or marijuana joint dipped in PCP. It sounds um, dangerous. She supposedly owed money to a drug dealer, and her family suggested that's, that that's maybe who killed her. She had attempted suicide once. She took some pills, and she did go into rehab, but unfortunately, it didn't really last. The last time her family saw her was on New Year's Eve in 1986, which was about 10 days before she was killed. According to her autopsy, she was shot in the chest with a 25 caliber gun, and the LAPD concluded that it was the same gun that had killed Deborah and Henrietta. So now this killer has a total of three victims. For whatever reason, he really ramps up his game in 1987. The next victim was found on April 16, 1987, and this would be 26-year-old Bernita Sparks. Two dudes were walking across the parking lot of their workplace, which was Chase's Appliances on Southwestern Avenue, and they saw something kind of odd. It was a white t-shirt with like a big tear in it, and it was blood-stained and had a hole in it. And it was next to a dumpster. So they looked in the dumpster and sticking out of a pile of garbage bags was a human foot. So they called the police and two officers came. And they found that the body appeared to have been dumped in head first. She was wearing jeans and a black shirt. One side of her was draped in a blanket. There was blood on her face coming out of her nose and mouth. Her jeans were unbuttoned and they got the impression that she was like redressed you know, like undressed at one point and then kind of sloppily redressed. There was a ligature mark on her neck, and she, of course, was missing her underwear. There was gunshot residue on her shirt, as usual, no identification. And this crime was within the, the uh, L.A. Sheriff's Department territory, so it was handled by the Sheriff's Department they identified her by her fingerprints as 26-year-old Bernita Sparks. She had had two minor arrests in 1983 for 
destroying evidence and drug possession. So they did their usual questioning of the neighbors. And a woman on Western Avenue said that she heard a woman screaming in the early hours of, you know, the morning. And I guess she looked out her window and she saw a black man leaving the alley. So the detectives informed Bernita's mother, Eva Beard, and she said that she last saw Bernita at about 1030 on the night of April 15th. Bernita said that she was going to the liquor store. And when she was asked if she knew anybody who would want to hurt her, her mom said, quote, no, Bernita was a good girl, end quote. She had a boyfriend named Fred, and she had just gotten a job. And in fact, she would have, if she had lived, she would have started the following week. Her autopsy showed a 25 caliber bullet in her chest, several blows to her head, and I told you about the ligature mark, so possible strangulation, which is something new. And they said that she appeared to have been dragged by her arms and placed in the dumpster. She was found to have alcohol and cocaine in her blood, and the bullet matched the previous three killings, and now the total is four. So on November 1st, Mary Lowe, age 26, was killed. She was known as Brenda. I guess that was like her street name. And just keep that name in mind, Brenda, for a little bit later. She was a sometime sex worker and she stayed with a dude named Eugene Gino King on and off. She had a thing for shoes. She bought tons of shoes. Sometimes she went to Gino's to sleep. He picked her up on October 29th and they went to a hotel where they had a fight for some reason. Mary wanted to see her mom, Betty, and Betty told her that she didn't look good. I guess she meant like unhealthy. And her mother told her, I think that you should move in with Gino. And Mary said, quote, I am going to live my own life. I don't care what you sons of bitches tell me. I am going to live and die on the streets, end quote. Unfortunately, that turned out to be quite a prophetic remark. Two days later, Mary celebrated a friend's birthday at the Love Trap Bar on Western Avenue. She called Gino at about 11.45 p.m. and asked him for a ride, but he said no. He must have still been mad at her. She was last seen leaving the bar at 1.15 a.m. And um, just a little note about her. I got a kick out of this. She was actually a dancer on the, sh the show Soul Train. I don't know if anybody remembers this. It was kind of like Solid Gold where they had like singing and, and they had the dancers. But I think it was even earlier and it was more like, um, I guess you would call maybe R&B style music. But I thought that was really interesting and I'm sure that, that she had to be quite a good dancer to, to be on there. The next morning, a dad and his nine-year-old son were walking through an alley and they came upon a body. It was twisted and face down between a bush and a cinder block wall. And of course it was Mary. Her shirt was pushed up and was also blood soaked with a small bullet hole in it. Her pants were unbuttoned and no underwear again. She had her purse with her, but there was no money or ID in it. 
and a piece of a crack pipe was found next to her leg. The police identified her and they determined that, like the others, she had been shot with a 25 caliber gun at very close range. Another familiarity was she was found to have cocaine and alcohol in her system. But remember, she just came home from a bar, so of course she would have alcohol. The detectives discovered that her lifestyle had been kind of transient. She had dropped out of George Washington High School in 11th grade. She had had some jobs. Her most recent one was as a re receptionist, and she did, you know, sex work on Western Avenue to pay for her drugs. She had a total of eight arrests, seven for prostitution and one for auto theft. So, obviously, the police made the link between her and the other victims. They did have a bunch of leads, but unfortunately, none of them panned out. During this time, they did develop other suspects, and they questioned many people. And I'm not going to go over all of them because it's a waste of time, and obviously, they're not the killer. We know who that is. There were other victims, other murder victims at this time, but they turned out to be victims of other killers who were eventually caught. So the next victim is 22-year-old Lucretia Jefferson. She was found on January 30th of 1988. Again, her body was found dumped in an alley, and for whatever reason, there was no mention in the media of this murder. She liked to party and go to clubs. I guess that means like nightclubs. Her mother, Wanda, said that she had recurring dreams that Lucretia would end up dead. And she told her, quote, keep your ass off the street. And Lucretia would come back with, you can't tell me what to do. And I think we all, or at least I did, went through that you can't tell me what to do phase. Come to think of it, I think I've always been in that. Lucretia was outgoing. She liked to dance and roller skate. And it it's weird how so many of these victims were into dancing and liked to dance. I don't think there's any kind of connection. It's just something that I noted. She wanted to be a pediatrician when she grew up. She had once lived in Kansas with her dad, James, but she came back to Los Angeles, where unfortunately she got hooked on crack. She was last seen at a crack house on Western Avenue. So at 9.20 a.m. on January 30th, a woman named Bertha found a foot sticking out from underneath a dirty mattress in an alley behind West 102nd Street. So she called the L.A. County Sheriff's Department because, you know, it was their territory. And the victim was, of course, Lucretia. She was wearing a green dress and a maroon coat. She was laying on her back. She had a comb sticking in her hair. The medics declared her dead at 9.55 a.m. She only weighed 99 pounds, which is extremely skinny. I don't know how tall she was. Strangely, um, and this is extremely bizarre. I still can't figure this out. Somebody had taken a napkin and written the word AIDS on it. You know, capital A-I-D-S and put it on top of her nose and mouth. Nobody seemed to be able to figure this one out. Did she have AIDS? Was she HIV positive? Did the killer do this? Um, you would think so. Who else would have done that? But why? And she had no underwear. 
At first, they thought that she had overdosed because she had a cracked pipe in her coat. But during the autopsy, they found that she had been shot twice in the side of her chest. And she was identified by her fingerprints as Lucretia Jefferson of Western Avenue. The bullets from her, of course, confirmed that she was killed by the same person that had killed the others. And that she had alcohol and cocaine in her system. It, just a real quick note, in case you didn't know about blood tests for drugs. When you do a blood test or pee test from somebody, it shows the type of metabolites that your body has already like digested and absorbed. So like for either crack or cocaine, whatever form it, it would say in the results, cocaine metabolites for any kind of benzos, it wouldn't say, you know, Xanax, Ativan, whatever. It would just say benzodiazepine. And the point is that after death, a blood test or pee test or whatever, wouldn't be able to tell if she had used either crack or powdered cocaine because they metabolize the same way. So just in case you were wondering about that. So in September of 1988, 18-year-old Monique Alexander was killed. Her dad was a postal worker, and sometimes he took her to work with him. The night she disappeared, which was September 6th, she said, I'm going to the liquor store. Does anybody want anything? So she's gone for like hours, and her dad's like, where's Monique? And her mom said, she's not back yet. And her dad's like, well, she's been gone for hours. So the next day, when she still hadn't returned, they knew something was wrong. So her 25-year-old brother went out to look for her. Her parents knew that she had recently developed drug habit, so they were kind of worried that she maybe got herself into some trouble. Now, a little bit about Monique. She was chubby when she was a baby, and this probably isn't nice, but it's funny. Her parents called her Moo or Moo Cow. She was said to be nurturing, like her mom. Her and her brother made go-karts and rode them around the neighborhood. And remember I said about how many of the, the victims like to dance. She loved ballet and ice skating. The kids had kind of a strict upbringing. They did chores and worked in the yard, which of course is good, but they didn't have doors on their bedrooms, which I think is kind of odd. She dropped out of school in 12th grade and she gradually started to develop some bad habits. She would stay out late, sometimes sneak out in the middle of the night. When she was 18, she was arrested for having drugs. She was dating a guy named Ronnie Lewis, who was 28. I remember she was 18. So um, what would they even talk about? I don't really understand that one. But not only was he 28, he was also married. She met him hanging out at an African artifact store. And like a lot of these married dudes do, he told her that he was in the middle of a separation from his wife. And he told Monique that he was just smitten with her. He probably says that to all the girls. She last saw him on September 2nd when they went out for dinner. So six days after she went missing, four boys between ages 7 and 13 were walking their dog down an alley behind West 43rd Street. And... You know dogs, you know how they smell something stinky and they go digging and stuff. 
So the dog went over to a big blue mattress that was like propped against a garage. And he was like digging and a foot fell out. And they're like, oh shit, we better go call the police. So the police came about 3.45 p.m. And they found the nude decomposing body of Monique. Her knees were slightly bent. She had a shirt twisted around her neck and knotted like maybe it was used to strangle her. She had a small caliber gunshot wound under her left breast. No ID, of course, but her fingerprints were on foul because she'd been arrested, so they identified her. And, of course, she had alcohol and cocaine in her system. The detectives were at the autopsy when they learned that the bullet matched all of the other six cases. So, by now, the detectives are starting to put some things together. All of these victims had been shot in the chest. The killer, killer seemed to be sitting to the left of them when they were shot, and they figured that the victims were sitting in the passenger seat of a car and were shot by somebody who was in the driver's seat. The gun was placed either very near them or like right on top of them. Monique was seen by a witness getting into a 74 or 75 Ford Pinto or Chevy Vega. The witness said it was either like a brown rust color and had a loud muffler. Two months later, in November of 1988, the police get their big break in the case. Somebody encounters the Grim Sleeper and lives to tell about it. On November 19th, 30-year-old Anitria Washington was walking down the street. She was not a prostitute, not into drugs, just a regular old person walking down the street minding her own business. And she was actually going to her friend Linda's house, and they were going to go to a party. She had two kids, ages 5 and 11. She was described as witty and gregarious, and she had the nickname of Chewy because she ground her teeth at night. She had lived in this area of South Central for her whole life. So she's walking along when all of a sudden an orange pinto with a white stripe on it pulls up beside her. And she noticed that there was a black dude driving, but she didn't really pay attention to him. She just kept walking. So he stops the car again, and rolls down the passenger window, and offers her a ride. She later described him as neatly dressed, stocky, with a short haircut, and she used the word nerd to describe him. And she told him, don't holler at me from a car. You have to get out to talk to me. And she said she didn't sense him to be dangerous. He seemed, like, kind of timid, actually. So he got out of the car... And he had on khaki pants, a blue button-down shirt, and a tan jacket. He looked to be over 30, was soft-spoken, and she said he was not attractive. He said, where are you headed? She said, I'm going to a friend's house. And he said, can I take you? And she just gave him a dirty look and started to walk away. And he said, what are you going to do with your friend? And she said, we're going to a party. And he said, let me take you to, over to your friend's house. She said, no, thank you, I'm good. So then he goes, that's what's wrong with you black women. People can't be nice to you. So she stopped and turned around and looked at him and said, excuse me? And she noticed that he was grinning. And then I guess she felt kind of bad for him. And she said he, she thought he looked harmless. And she was like, okay, you can take me. So she gets in the car. She told him where she was going, you know, Linda's house. 
And she noticed that he was going the wrong way. And she's like, where are you going? And he said he had to stop at his uncle's house to get some money. So they stopped at this house on 81st Street. And he goes in. He's like, I'll be right back. And he comes right back. And Anitria later said that it was like Jack one Hyde. Like one minute he was easygoing. And then he just turned vicious all of a sudden. And um, he said something like, you always be dogging me out, Brenda. And she's like, my name is not Brenda. And remember Mary Lowe, an earlier victim, how I said her street name was Brenda. And was he thinking that Nitri was her? Was he getting those two names confused? So he reached into the driver's side pocket on the door and pulls out a small gun and pointed it at her chest. And Anitria later said she felt a sudden sting and a pain, and she realized that he shot her. So she reaches for the door handle, and he goes, don't touch that door, bitch, I'll shoot you again. So he grabs her, and she said all these things are going through her, her head, like, am I going to die? What's going to happen to my kids? And she goes, I think you need to take me to the hospital. And he said, I can't do that. And she, I love this part, she said to him, if I die, I'm going to haunt you. You better take care of my kids. So she tried to stay calm, but she was, which I don't know how you would do, but she was having a hard time breathing because she just got shot in the chest. She said she blacked out, and when she came to, he was on top of her straddling her, and the car seat was like reclined, and she was going in and out of consciousness. She heard the engine start, and then he pushed her out of the door, and she hit the ground, and she was laying there crumpled and bleeding in the street, and she's in pain, weak, weak from blood loss, doesn't even have any shoes. I don't know how far from Linda's house it was from there, but she made it to Linda's house, and she's knocking on the door yelling, help me open the door. And unfortunately, Linda and her husband had gone to this party, so they weren't home. And when they came home, they find Anitria on their porch. This is two o'clock in the morning in a fetal position, real weak. And she's like, don't let me die. So they're like, oh, my God. So they called an ambulance and she was rushed to the uh, Harbor UCLA Medical Center. And her condition was called dire. She apparently lost 20% of her blood volume. Four days later, she was stable enough for the bullet to be removed from her, and it was found that it had just missed her heart. The detectives were already on this case. As soon as they got the bullet and they confirmed that it was a match to the other Grim Sleeper murders, well, they weren't calling him that yet, but, you know, those murders. So when Anitria felt better, she talked to the detectives and described the dude who shot her. She said he was a dark-skinned black man with pock marks on his face, short hair, medium build, maybe in his 30s. And that's a pretty good description considering that she almost died. She would be in the hospital for five days. And when she was discharged, the detectives drove her around the neighborhood and had her show them the places like where he shot her, where he dumped her, etc. And the house that he stopped at, remember he said he had to go and to get money, belonged to a dude named Othus White, and the police noted that he was too old to be the their suspect, but they noticed that there were a lot of people going in and out, so they thought maybe this is a crack house. 
they did kind of like keep him on their radar for a while. And I have a clip here of Anitria on a new show describing her ordeal. You're the only one who survived this serial killer. I survived the survivor that we only know of. When Anitria, a home health care provider, accepted a ride from a friendly man driving an orange Pinto, she had no idea she was getting into the car with the notorious grim sleeper. Where were you headed that night? I was going to a party. And he said, well, can I go? The man behind the wheel had already savagely killed seven women, and Anitria was supposed to be number eight. And you didn't get a weird vibe from him? Well, I did. Your gut said, don't get don't in the car. Don't get in the car, and, and I did it anyway. What happens inside that car, she says, plays out like a real-life horror movie. Everything just got really quiet. I mean, eerie quiet. And I'm going, The madman shot Anitria point-blank in the chest and then began to savagely rape her. He's shot you. Yes. He is sexually violating you. Yes. Driving you around. Right. And you're dying. I'm going, how could you kiss me and do all this and I'm bleeding? After hours of torture, Anitria makes a life or death decision. She grabs for the door handle. He probably thought you were never going to make it. He probably thought you were dead. I believe that he thought the same thing, that I'd probably get run over and just lay there in the street anyway. But Anitria was a fighter. Doctors are able to retrieve a small 25 caliber bullet from her chest. Ballistics reveals it's a match. The same gun was used on the Grim Sleeper's seven other victims. This is the same guy, same gun, same MO. She changed everything for the LAPD, really. The fact that she had the bullet in her chest. Cops finally had someone who could put a face on the killer. Anitria helps a police artist with this sketch. She also tells detectives about a bright light inside the car possibly the flash from a camera. I remember that flash being in front of my face. So now came the rest period that gave Lonnie Franklin his nickname of the Grim Sleeper. This nickname, by the way, was given to him by one of the newspapers. So he didn't kill anybody that we know of until 2003. In 2001, the LAPD started a cold case unit, and they used DNA to solve several unsolved murders, which the community was happy about. They asked the detectives, which unsolved case do you think is solvable? What do you want to work on? And they said the Grim Sleeper case. And by now they realized that Deborah, Henrietta, Mary, Bronita, Barbara, and Monique all had been killed by the same person and, you know, the same person who shot Anitria. Their bodies were all dumped in alleys near Western Avenue, and Lucretia Jefferson, who was the sheriff's victim, was linked to them through ballistics, so she's one of them too. They realized that all of these victims were missing underwear. They appeared to be redressed, sloppily redressed, so there were a lot of similarities between them. In 2004, they found another victim to add to the list. And this would be what they call a DNA cross hit. And it it means that DNA that's in the system that doesn't have a perpetrator attached to it, but it's just floating around waiting for a match to somebody, match to the Grim Sleeper cases. 
And this victim was 35-year-old Valerie McCorvey. She was killed on July 11th of 2003. She was found when a crossing guard was at her post in the morning. And a guy pulls up in a car and said, call the police. There's a body over there. And it was Valerie. She was crumpled. Her leotard was crooked. Her pants were pulled down. No underwear, of course. And the police noticed road rash on her shoulder, like uh, that she had been probably pushed from a car. She had a bite mark on her breast. And this would become to be kind of like his trademark. Like he just had this thing about biting women on their, their breasts. And fortunately, that's what's going to get him caught. Her cause of death was strangulation, but she also suffered blunt force trauma to the head. The uh, forensic pathologist figured that it would have taken her one to two minutes to die. She had drugs and alcohol in her system, but we don't know exactly what kind. She was a known drug addict living on the street, and she had six arrests for prostitution. She had two kids in foster care. She had actually worked at a drug treatment facility for a while, but unfortunately, she fell into the drug habit herself. Now, she did have a pimp, and her pimp's daughter, Lucinda, said, quote, When she was not on drugs, you could tell she could have been a lawyer or a teacher. I think she was very embarrassed when she came around me. She was a sweet person, and she wanted more, but she couldn't because the drugs had her, end quote. So the police are like, this is obviously the, gr the grim sleeper, but why has he been quiet? And they theorized that maybe because Anitria lived, he figured he'd had a close call, he better lay low, which is what I think. The youngest victim of Lonnie Franklin was killed in December of 2004. And this was 15-year-old Princess Bertha Mew. This poor girl had had such a shitty life. She was a foster child. She was abandoned by her mother as a toddler and left with her piece of shit father, whose name was Venus. Yeah, a dude named Venus. He didn't feed her and he beat her. So in 1989, she either got hold of or he gave her some kind of poison, and the ambulance came, and the medics saw that she was three years old and couldn't even walk or talk. And they're like, this is some bullshit here. So they called the police, and they found bruises and scars all over her. She was covered with cigarette burns, and she had ligature marks around her wrists and ankles. And the one cop said, she's pretty much a three-year-old human punching bag. Her dad and his girlfriend were charged with 11 counts of felony child abuse. The girlfriend got one year in jail, and the dad got four. When she came home from the hospital, Princess stayed with David and Dolores Smart. And fortunately, they took good care of her. But unfortunately, Dolores died when Princess was 10, and then she was said to become reclusive and angry. And her sister couldn't take care of her because she had six kids of her own. So unfortunately, Princess ended up back in the foster system when she was 12. She ran away at some point and she ended up with a pimp. And I think when we talk about victims, it's always best to hear them described by those who knew and loved them. So here is an interview with Princess's foster sister describing her life and her untimely death. And it's pretty long, so I cut it down a little bit. She was just the sweetest thing. Very humble, very sweet spirit. Obviously had been very traumatized. 
at a very young age when she came to us. So, you know, we always knew that she was more delicate and we always protected her and kept her really sheltered. She had had burn marks all over most of her body. So she had just had a lot of abuse and she literally had to be reconstructed. If you understand what I'm saying, just the levels of everything you could imagine you would do, the worst things you could do to a human being and to a two and a half year old, it's just, it was unheard of. And we, we just could not wrap our arms around it. We can understand it. It was the most horrific thing. I didn't understand enough until I saw her. Um, when they brought her home, my mother was a nurse, a retired nurse. So they chose her specifically to be the one to take care of Princess because of her experience. When she went to change her, I literally, I, I was not prepared to see what I saw. I, I couldn't believe something like that happened to a child. In spite of that, she could still smile. She could still engage. She was just amazing. She had such a beautiful spirit. And I, I think she was trying to do the best she could, but then I don't think she was prepared for the world she became a part of. And it's, it's the hardest thing. Because you think about your child, think about your little child, if you had a child and it going and living in an environment they're completely unfamiliar with. It's like, it was a culture shock. And I just know that she probably got overrun. So she ran away from one home. Then she ended up with the other one. And I, I talked to her probably November. I knew that something was wrong and to have no power to help her was the most devastating thing. So I guess she ran away again in December, like probably like a month or two after I talked to her. And um, they found her body in March of 2002. I found out about a year after she was already gone that she was gone. And I remember telling my kids, I was like, somebody hurt her. I know it. Some, in fact, she was the only victim that, and I'm not, it doesn't exclude anything or make her better, but she was the only one that didn't have any drugs in her system whatsoever. So I know she was strangled. I don't know how she died. Um, I know she had assaulted her and he had assaulted her because a child doesn't get to decide they're going to have sex with an adult three times their age. So there's no way he assaulted her because he had picked her up. And after he assaulted her, he strangled her and killed her. I never wanted to see any of the images of her body because I knew it would be too hard. So I had to get on the stand and I had to look at her body and I had to identify her on the stand. And it was really hard, um, to say the least. I didn't want to have my last mental image of her being something that looked horrible because, you know, I have to live with these things. And I think that's the one thing people don't understand. They were the, they were the dead victims and they're the living victims. And the living victims always have to remember everything and think of and just wonder and how long and how long did it last? You know, we're left with all that. You know, the, it's the anguish of the final moments. When the verdict came in, it was relief. And it wasn't just that he was guilty and he was going to suffer or anything. It was relief that he will never again be able to hurt anyone the way he hurt us. Us, all of us. The victims he killed, the victims he that are left remaining, that he won't do this to any other family. No one else will have to go through what we went through. No one else will be subjected to that kind of torment and that kind of humiliation and and having to have your family members life thrown out there and them talked about as if they are a thing and not a person and not a loved individual this whole thing has been nothing but surreal and the reality is is she's never and even to this day i have trouble talking about all of it i can't still get through it and i'm like why am i such a 
a wimp. <laughs> I can't get through it without feeling. So on March 9th of 2002, about noon, a dude called 911 to report a body in an alley behind South Van Ness Boulevard in Inglewood. And it was Princess. She was nude, laying on her side in a patch of weeds. She had a ligature-type mark on her neck, and she had blood coming out of her nose. Her eyes were hemorrhaging, which is common in people who have been strangled or asphyxiated. An autopsy showed that she was 5 feet tall and 100 pounds, and she had been sodomized, sadly, by um, the presence of blood in her anus. Her cause of death was strangulation. So she was unusually killed five months before she was identified. And of course, her pimp was a suspect because I, I think if you're in that line of work and you have a pimp that by nature of the way things are, that the pimp is usually a suspect, but he was clear. So the last known victim of Lonnie Franklin was 25-year-old Janisha Peters. She lived with her mother and two sisters, but when she wasn't with them, she moved in and out of shitty motels. She was unfortunately into drugs. She also loved to dance. She actually started her own dance group when she was eight. By the time she was in her late teens, she had had three friends die from either drugs or gang violence. And she got pregnant at age 19 and had her son, Justin. On January 1st of 2007, at about 9 o'clock in the morning, a homeless man named Randy was looking in alleys for things to recycle, you know, bottles, cans, etc., on Western Avenue. And he looked in a dumpster and saw a big plastic bag that was torn open and a human hand was sticking out of it. So he called 911 and the police came and they actually took the entire dumpster to the medical examiner. Janisha, it was Janisha, she had been shot in the lower back and her spinal cord was damaged, so she would have been paralyzed from the waist down. She had petechia in her eyes, and her cause of death was gunshot wound and possible asphyxiation. After she was dead, she was folded, put in the bag, and tied with a zip tie, one of those plastic things, and this will be very important. She had cocaine in her system, and she was identified the next day. The vice squad knew her, knew her as Destiny. Her favorite hangout was called the Fairlane Motel, which was six blocks from where she was found. So the police questioned the people at the motel. The janitor said that he saw her in the parking lot the previous night, which was New Year's Eve. And he said her hair was messed up and it looked like she was crying. So they shared some crack, and he said he saw her later, about 12.30 in the morning, and she got into a Jeep with her pimp. So that's all the victims, or at least the ones who have been proven. So in 2007, remember I told you the LAPD now has a cold case unit. The captain of that unit is Kyle Jackson, and he gets what's called a case-to-case -case DNA hit. What that means is... There's a case somewhere in the system with DNA on it that has an unknown killer, and they match it to the DNA on another case with an unknown killer. And remember I told you that Janisha was put in a garbage bag and it was tied with a zip tie? 
Well, fortunately, this asshole put this zip tie in his mouth to tie it because there was ended up being saliva on it. So they got DNA from it and that was found to match the DNA found on the skin of Princess and Valerie. And they soon learned that it also matched the unknown killer of the seven women in the 80s. They still don't know who it is, but they know it's all the same person. Then they started a new task force headed by Detective Dennis Kilcoyne, and we'll be seeing a lot of him. He had been a police officer since 1977. He was from Boston, and he'd worked on other famous cases like O.J. Simpson and Ennis Cosby, you know, uh, Bill Cosby's son that was murdered. He tried to keep the fact that there was a task force quiet because he didn't want the killer to know that they were onto him. They picked seven different detectives to work on this so-called Grim Sleeper case, and they called it the 800 Task Force because they met in room 800. The profile they had so far on the Grim Sleeper was that he preyed on the weak and vulnerable, women that he thought he could take advantage of. He was opportunistic. He likely lured women into his car with drugs or just his charming personality. He was elusive, and they figured that he lived in or around South Central. They pulled cases on 150 black females in South Central going back 23 years and studied them because they suspected that he committed more than 10 murders, and it turns out they would be right. Since a lot of them were found in dumpsters, they theorized that a lot of victims had ended up in landfills because, you know, if you put something in a dumpster, unless somebody finds it, it will end up eventually in a landfill. So who knows how many bodies are rotting away in landfills? There's no way to know. And then later we're going to find out he, that he worked as a garbage collector and he would probably know the garbage pickup times. And I'm sure he used this to his advantage. Have you ever heard of the term geographical profiling? It was first developed by researchers in Canada, and the basic theory of it is that you take a series of crimes, put them on a map, and there's some formula that determines the that the offender most likely lives in the center of this area. So they put pins where each of these victims was found. And it turns out that Lonnie Franklin's house is smack dab in the middle. So all of these victims have been found near one another, near Western Avenue. Now, this is very important. In the spring of 2008, a new forensic tool was approved by California. At that time, only California and Colorado were using this particular method of DNA analysis. Now I don't know how many states are. I, I think probably all of them. But anyway, Detective Shepard, he's one of the people on the task force, he read in the newspaper about something called familial DNA. And he thought, hmm, this could be something that we could use here. And what it is, is they obviously had DNA from all of these victims, but it didn't match anybody in the system. So how familial DNA works and I have a news clip that I think does a better job of explaining it. It matches the close relatives of DNA that you already have. And because nobody has the same DNA except for identical twins, 
but relatives have similar DNA. So they use this science, and I think it came from the UK, as a matter of fact, to develop a way to use relatives to match DNA. So Jerry Brown, who used to be the governor of California, but at the time was the attorney general of California, he approved this method, which did have its detractors. You'll hear more about that. So the detectives went to Sacramento, which is the capital of California, and they met with Jill Spriggs, who was the bureau chief at the California Department of Justice. And they put in a request to use this familial DNA technique. And while they were waiting for it to be approved, the city put up a $500,000 reward. It's on this big-ass billboard, and it has all of the victims' pictures on it. And the funny thing is it's almost right over Lonnie Franklin's house. He could actually see it from his house. In April of 2009, there was a meeting at a church with the detectives of the task force and the families of the victims and Christine Pelisek. You know, that's who wrote the book. This was basically where the family members asked the detectives, what exactly Urian's doing? Where's the investigation going? And through wasn't much happening at the time because there wasn't really any news, but it was a good opportunity to the family members to get together and get to know each other and comfort each other. So here's this news clip that tells more about familial DNA and what the argument about it is. DNA sample that first led police to his doorstep wasn't his. It was his son's. Familial DNA, it's called. Yep. It's called familial DNA because it is the DNA not of the ultimate suspect, but of a very, very close relative. California and Colorado are the only states that allow familial DNA searches. But the Grim Sleeper case is bound to change that. This is a landmark case. Lonnie David Franklin Jr. is now the poster suspect for the expansion of genetic crime fighting. This will change the way Policing is done in the United States. The LAPD has come a long way since the People versus O.J. Simpson 16 years ago. Back then, the botched handling of DNA evidence helped defense lawyers raise doubts about the blood tying Simpson to the murder scene. Simpson, of course, was acquitted. But the LAPD's DNA lab is now state-of-the-art. Today, the LAPD gave us a tour of the facility where they made the crucial breakthrough in the Grim Sleeper case, Remember, the familial DNA search had led them to suspect Lonnie David Franklin, but they had no DNA sample of Franklin on file until last Monday when a police stakeout finally paid off. The detectives actually hand-carried the items in here. And what was it? A slice of pizza, I think a fork, there was a napkin. Uh, it was a total of, of, I think, eight different items that they submitted to us. And that was enough? It turned out to be enough, yes. As any fan of the TV show CSI can tell you, the technology is morally neutral, but the potential applications raise enormous ethical issues. The fact that California authorities caught the grim sleeper is great, unequivocally. But you can imagine lots of misuses of familial DNA. At one extreme, there's the world imagined in the movie Gattaca, where the genetic database determines everything from where you can work to who you can marry. That's science fiction. But as of the grim sleeper, it's now science fact that a DNA sample collected from one person can implicate members of an entire family. There are certain families that are going to be looked at much more closely by the police than others. 
This raises specters that used to be associated with the eugenics movement, the science of better breeding. It's almost the idea of corruption of blood. There's also the fear that DNA databases could be the ultimate in racial profiling. African Americans are represented in DNA databases at a rate of about four to one to whites. That means that the families of African American people in the database are going to be disproportionately placed under permanent genetic surveillance. And I imagine there are lots of African American families who will think that that's racial discrimination, pure and simple. It's not a racial injustice when you catch somebody uh, who just killed 10 people. The people who are most happy about it are the families of the victims, which are all African Americans. Proponents of the expanded use of DNA point out it's not only helped implicate the guilty, it has also helped exonerate the innocent. Among them, Eddie Joe Lloyd, who served 17 years in a Michigan prison for a murder he didn't commit. But what about Lily Haskell of Oakland, arrested last year while attending a Bay Area protest of the Iraq War and forced to give a sample of her DNA? The very law that expanded California's DNA database, leading to the Grim Sleeper's arrest, requires that anyone arrested for a felony give a DNA sample, whether or not they're ever charged or convicted. In Haskell's case, the charges were dropped, but that DNA sample is still in the database. Haskell and others, backed by the American Civil Liberties Union, are now suing the state of California, hoping the expanded database will be declared unconstitutional. California Attorney General Jerry Brown will be defending the new law. There is in our society a presumption of innocence. Does this in any way infringe on that? No more than taking our fingerprints. I mean, you're arrested. The first thing when you're booked is you put your hand down and they get your fingerprints. That's a fact. DNA reveals much more about me than my fingerprint. It may reveal my predisposition to diseases, my genetic history, and it's not at all clear that the full DNA fingerprint may not be stored in ways that will come back to haunt us. What would be wrong with tossing that sample when the case is tossed out? Why not uh, give back fingerprints, take them out of the FBI file once you're not arrested? We don't do that. Do you understand why a lot of liberals are upset with you for taking this position? I don't know that they are. The DNA approach to California is reasonable. The people voted for it, and I'm hoping the courts will uphold it. But right now, the strongest argument Jerry Brown can make in court is that without this technology, a suspected serial killer would still be out there preying on innocent lives. The person you heard arguing against the technique was a defense attorney, and the person arguing for it was Jerry Brown. Now, in 2010, Jill Spriggs, remember that's the bureau chief for the California Department of Justice, gave the task force the go-ahead to try this familial DNA search. So the database of California felons at the time had 1.4 million people in it. On June 30th of 2010, Jill Spriggs called Detective Kilcoyne and said, pick me up at the airport on July 2nd, but don't tell anybody. And he's like peeing his pants. He has to keep his mouth shut for two days, knowing that something big is going on. And he thinks it's probably a match in the Grim Sleeper case. So he gets her at the airport and they talk. And she said, the lab got a familial DNA match on the Grim Sleeper case. They got five top hits, but only one shared a common genetic marker with the DNA found on the victims. And the person whose DNA matched was 28-year-old Christopher Franklin, who, of course, is Lonnie Franklin's son. In 2009, 
he pled guilty to a firearms charge. So because he's now a felon, his DNA was entered into the system. And they did some research and they figured out that Christopher was too young to be their suspect. Because remember, the murder started in the 80s. And they see that he has a dad who lives right in the middle of all of the crime scenes. And they're like, hmm. So they called Task Force Detective Paul Coulter. And they say, find out everything you can on this Lonnie Franklin Jr. And he got the following biographical information. At this time, Lonnie was 57. He lived with his wife, Sylvia, and they'd been married for over 30 years. They lived on West 81st Street, which was actually three doors down from where he stopped. Remember when he had Anitria in the car with him and he said, I got to stop at my quote-unquote uncle's house before he shot her? Well, that house was three doors down from him. And this may or may not be significant, but it's kind of interesting. Right before he was born, his mother was in a head-on collision and was thrown from the car. Now, while she was pregnant with him, could he have gotten some kind of brain damage? We don't know, and we'll never know. I don't know how they found all this stuff out, but I'm pretty impressed. He'd been a, a sickly kid, he had a lot of colds, migraines, till he was in his 40s, and later he had bleeding ulcers. When he was young, he was said to be a fast talker and a flirt. His first crush was on a neighborhood girl at seven or eight. Now, where is this written down? Unless they're reading his diary. He lost his virginity at age 14. When he was in ninth grade, he had a girlfriend in, in grades 11 and 12, he had a girlfriend. This fucker always had a girlfriend. What's up with that? I didn't go on a date till I was in college. He seemed mild-mannered and respectful, but something seemed to change all of a sudden. When he was 16, he was arrested twice for Grand Theft Auto. In 1970, he was arrested for burglary. And I'm thinking that this is somehow significant. During the time he was on trial in Germany for the gang rape of Ingrid, remember that? His mother came to support him and stayed there in Germany for three and a half months. The prosecutor, or whatever the German equivalent was, told a panel of judges that this assault was, quote, the most brutal assault he had seen over the past 10 years, end quote. In 1976, he got a general discharge from the army, meaning he was ineligible, ineligible to re-enlist. The army's like, we don't want you no more. We're done with you. When in Germany, he had a psychiatric evaluation. He claimed that he had trouble sleeping. He claimed that he had mild anxiety and depression. And he said he had gonorrhea, which is no wonder because he couldn't keep his dick in his pants. He was found to have no psychiatric problems or mental illness, and he supposedly knew right from wrong. So he comes home to California. He met Sylvia, his wife, at the Los Angeles Trade and Technical College. They got married a, married a year later He was when he was 22. They had Crystal in 1978 and Christopher in 1981. He worked at a gas station for a while, then he worked for Veterans Affairs. Then, interestingly, he worked as a security guard for a while. 
And you know how a lot of these killers and rapists and so forth are attracted to police work or security guard work because of the perceived power that the job has, and that just stands out to me as a point of interest. He was a truck driver for a while. Then in 1981, he was hired as a garage attendant for the LAPD. And this is notable, obviously, because it puts him in close proximity to police. And being the gregarious, talkative type that he was, I can totally picture him bullshitting with all the cops. Like, oh, how about that dude that's killing hookers? You know, blah, blah, blah. He worked there for a couple years, and then he went to the Department of Sanitation because it was more money and more overtime. Interestingly, while he worked there, he filed many injury or disability claims. By 1985, he had had four of them, and it looks like a total of at least six. In 1988, when two people were killed and Anitri was shot, he was conveniently on leave. He was eventually given permanent disability around 1991, so now he had all the free time he wanted to run his illegal car sales business and troll the streets for girls. His friends and neighbors described him as helpful and talkative. He liked to gossip, didn't use drugs, not even weed. He was famous for having lots of girlfriends on the side. Plus, he liked to go pick up sex workers. And they said his wife either didn't know, which she'd have to be pretty dense, or more likely just chose to ignore it. He had at least four girlfriends while he was married. He had Alexis in 1982 for a couple years. Then he went out with a nurse, whose name I don't know. Then he had Beverly in the mid-80s, and then he had Sonia, who he would actually be with when he was eventually arrested. Probably his best friend was Ray Davis. Ray didn't know that Lonnie actually raped or killed women, but he did know that he was a horny bastard. Lonnie would discuss his girlfriends and the girls he picked up with Ray and his other friends, and Ray would actually later testify in court as to things he saw and heard. He said he saw a whole bunch of pictures of women, mostly nude or scantily clad, and Lonnie said, these are my girls. Note the use of the word my. It's like a possessive. You know, these are my girls. So he showed his friends this big bag of bras and women's underwear, and he said that he bought them, and they were for his girlfriends. Now, who goes and buys random bras and underwear to give to their girlfriends. If I met some dude and he was like, here, have a pair of underwear, I'd be like, get the fuck out of here. You just don't do that. So remember I told you that all of the victims had been missing their underwear and I thought he was saving them? Well, we're going to talk about that more at the end. Now, speaking of disgusting habits, he had nicknames for his girlfriends, and for girls that he knew. He called them names according to their boobs or other body features, and I swear I'm not making these up. Friends said that these were actual nicknames he had for people. Droopy titties, big leg, big butt, skinny leg. That's like me having a boyfriend or male friend and saying, hey, it's pencil dick. He's disgusting. 
So everybody knew that after his wife went to sleep, he'd sneak out at night and drive up and down the streets looking for women. He had a homemade porn collection starring himself. And I feel bad if any cops had to watch this. He liked to show off a 25 caliber pistol that he carried in his front pocket. And they found, the police found that he had had quite a few arrests. Burglary, grand theft, carrying a loaded firearm, possession of burglary tools, assault with a firearm. By 1993, the police were aware that he was running a stolen property business out of his house, which mainly consisted of cars, car parts, and things associated with cars. In February of 1993, the police heard that there were car strippers around. And you, you know what uh, a car stripper is, somebody who takes apart stolen cars and then sells the parts so they go to Lonnie's house, and they see him and his son, Chris, who was at that time 11, working on a Toyota MR2, which they don't make anymore. And they have these helicopters up above. And this is quite amusing. He sees the helicopters, and he looks up like, oh, shit. So he tries to hide under a van. And the police ask him, who owns this, meaning the car? And he's like, I just bought it. So they run the license plate, and of course it comes back stolen. And they look around and find more cars and all these car parts stacked all over the place. It looks like a house on hoarders. And they find that the VIN numbers on all the parts match those that are reported stolen. So Lonnie, who was 40 at the time, was charged with six counts of grand theft audit. Later that year, he went in front of a judge, Kathleen Kennedy, remember that name, and he pled guilty. Like anybody I've ever met who's caught with stolen property, he claims that he didn't know that it was stolen, he just happened to find it or whatever. The information I have said that a report and I could tell that that would be a pre-sentence report, those are what I used to do, said that he was a, quote, major party involved in stolen property responsible for the theft of approximately 30 cars over three months, end quote. That's a lot of cars. The DA at the time said, quote, we have someone with a criminal history going back to 1969 for theft offenses, burglary, burglary tools, receiving stolen property. There's nothing naive about this man, end quote. He was sentenced to one year in jail, and over the next nine years, he would be arrested for grand theft, auto, robbery, assault with a deadly weapon other than a firearm with great bodily injury. And what happened in that case? Does this sound familiar? He was driving and one of his many girlfriends was in the passenger seat. They had a fight and she apparently tried to jump out of the car. But he pulled her back inside and hit her. And he drove for a short distance with her like half hanging out of the car. Finally, she got free. And fortunately, a witness saw all this going on and came over and helped her. In 2003, there was an Infinity stolen from a mall parking lot, and it had some kind of, like, tracking device in it. So the police tracked it to guess where? Right. They watched him move it from one side of the street to the other. He was now 50. He's getting kind of old for this shit. So they arrest him, and he said that he had no idea the car was stolen. 
All he knew is that some dude gave it to him and asked him to install a TV and DVD player in it. So he got 270 days in jail. The detectives have all this information on him, and now they know he's not only a pervert, but a thief too. So they decide that what they're going to do is they're going to do surveillance on him and hope to eventually surreptitiously get some DNA. And they figure if they follow him around for long enough, he'll eventually throw away a can, straw, cigarette, something. It's inevitable, right? Well, he didn't make it easy on them. They broke into shifts and followed him around for probably about four days, during which at no time did he discard anything that they could collect. They did one night, interestingly, follow him. When he came out in the middle of the night, got into a car and trolled Western Avenue, stopped to talk to several girls on the way. So, on July 5th, he's driving his wife's van. He goes and picks up Sonia, his girlfriend, and her two daughters. I don't know how old they were, but I'm thinking they're pretty young. And they drive 25 miles to John's Incredible Pizza Company in Wayne Park Mall. Apparently, it's some kid's birthday party. And this restaurant had, like, party rooms. And there was a kid's birthday party going on, and... Lonnie sits at the table with all the kids and everybody else, and they're, they're eating pizza. And you got to hand it to Detective Art Stone. This dude is brilliant, and I hope he got a raise for this, or at least a donut or something. He gets this idea. He talks to the manager. He shows him his ID and says what they're trying to do, etc. So he puts on a uniform of the restaurant, and he poses as a busboy. He gets a plastic tub, and he goes into the party room where Lonnie and everybody is, and puts everybody's dirty dishes in this tub, but he makes sure that he sets aside those dishes that he knows are Lonnie's. So he gets a fork, two napkins, two plastic cups, a piece of discarded crust, and a white ceramic plate with a piece of partially eaten chocolate cake on it. Jackpot. So then he goes and meets with the rest of his team. They photograph everything properly, tag it, mark it, and put it in boxes and do everything how they're supposed to do and take it to the crime lab. And on July 7th, they find out that the pizza and napkin yielded gold in the form of DNA that matched that of that was on the victim's. So they promptly go to the home of a judge and get an arrest and a search warrant. And at 9.20 a.m., all of the police, with all of their riot gear and everything, converge on Lonnie's greenhouse. And he's outside on the street. I think he was bullshitting with a neighbor, as usual. And he sees, like, the whole LAPD coming at him. And he had to know at that point what was going on. I think he probably figured that this wasn't about a stolen car. And they said he didn't resist. He just seemed like resigned. They took him to the station. And later, Detective Paul Calder said that whenever he saw Lonnie for the first time, he thought, quote, this is the little shit we have been looking for all this time, end quote. They said he was polite, you know, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full. 
At this time, he was now 57 years old. While he's being questioned, the evidence team starts collecting stuff from his house, and they will be there for three whole days. And this was like a circus. It looked like a street fair. They actually had tents set up in the yard that said LAPD. There were people buzzing around all over the place. The street was filled with neighbors who came out to gawk and media. And it, it was just a literal circus. So the media was going around asking neighbors, um, okay, your neighbor's been arrested and charged with being a serial killer. What are your thoughts? And everybody was shocked. Everybody thought he was so nice. He fixed shit. He did this and that and blah, blah, blah. And I have a couple news clips that I put together of neighbors talking about Lonnie. These murders started in 1984, excuse, 1985, excuse me, went from 85 to 89, then there was a 14-year gap where they stopped and then they resumed again, 11 altogether, but as you heard the captain say, he is being booked on 10 counts of murder, uh, not the 11. Also, this neighborhood is in shock. Some samples, some examples of what people had to say, some wanted to be on camera, some did not. He was a guy that this, this worked on cars and... He's, he's appeared to be such a nice guy, you know, he's a mechanic, every time you see him, yeah, and he's always like, mind his own business, you know, like, but nothing going on. He's very friendly, very helpful. You look shocked. I am, because I've sat in his camper plenty of times. I've sat there with him, watching movies or having a drink or... Never tried to hurt you? No. Never gave any indication no. that he could be a mass killer? No. Let me tell you, he used to work on all my family cars. He used to work for the police department. He was a mechanic. For the police all, department? For the police department over at 77 Division. I can verify that. I've been with him alone about two or three times. To do what? My, to my car. Because I had gotten into a bad accident, so he was always fixing my car. But I, And i always been alone with him, and he never touched me, threatened me, or you anything. Say always how many times? Like about three or four times. He came to my house before. Um, at nighttime, we'll give us rides to school. Like I said, I've, I've known him since kindergarten. We would walk by his route when he was the garbage man. So I remember when I was young, I just knew him as like the garbage man down the street that would like crack jokes with us, you know. He's known as the friendly, affordable neighborhood mechanic. He works out of his home garage. Franklin is also known as the go-to handyman who can fix or do anything. Oh, I've been over there plenty of times. Like I said, I was just there last week getting my brakes fixed. They tell me he's a church-going family guy who volunteers in the community and takes part in holiday events. He's a former city sanitation worker. Back in the 80s, he worked with police every day at the 77th Division where he was an LAPD mechanic. If I needed something done in my house, around my house, he would come do. You know, I never felt intimidated or thought that I was ever in harm's way. So, at headquarters, they called the victim's family members and told them to come down so they could talk to them. They didn't want them to hear this news on the news. And they put Lonnie in an interrogation room. He's sitting there for a while, and they go into interrogate him. And this motherfucker's asleep. Now, I will play in part of the interrogation. But first of all, if you were innocent, would you be sleeping at the police station? I don't think so. If it was me, I'd be like, why am I here? What's this about? I didn't do nothing. I want a lawyer, right? I'm just saying. So pay attention to him during the interview. He's sitting in the corner, and if you're so inclined, you can find the videos on YouTube. And he's 
kind of reclined, like in the corner, like he's slouching. Doesn't look nervous or anxious. He just looks comfortable. Well, he probably is used to being questioned by police. But he probably thinks he's just going to like bullshit with the cops and chat and talk about his girls and so forth. So I took two tapes and put them together. I didn't want to play the whole thing because it's like an hour long. But I clipped the most important parts or the points that I wanted to emphasize. So that's what you're going to hear. And the detective that does most of the talking is Detective Dennis Kilcoyne. And the other one is Detective Paul Coulter. So here it is. Ask you, do you know why you're here? No, I don't. Do you have any idea why you're here? No, I don't. Okay, well, we're working on an investigation, and uh, there's a warrant for your arrest. Uh, charging a count of murder. Count of murder? Yes, sir. Okay. I, I mean, I, you watch all these little police mm-hmm. shows and CSIs and, and all that stuff with modern technologies and all that. Right. Okay, well, you've been identified to this young lady. Okay, do you understand that? Yes, I do. Okay, do you have any questions about that? Why would you be identified? I don't know. I, I don't know. I know a lot of people, but I don't know her. Okay, all right. So do you know how the, I'm sure you probably uh, heard about DNA. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, your DNA was identified in relation to this young lady's death. Okay. No, I'm just saying that. You, that's what you're telling me, so that's all I can say. How could that happen? I don't know. You have no idea? I have no idea. Mr. Franklin, we're, we're, we're both old guys. Right. Okay. Yeah. And I'm sitting here, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm ready to answer questions of you. Right. I'm, I'm being upfront with you. And, uh, and, that's, and by you telling me that you don't know these people or had not know any way that your DNA got on their bodies, You're insulting my intelligence. I'm sorry, I don't know. I do not know. Mr. Franklin, I mean, you watch these shows. I mean, what do you, I mean, do you have anything uh, to say? No, I don't. I don't know the people. (laughs) Sorry. I mean, how would your DNA get there? What logical reason? I I have no clue. No clue. I mean, I have no clue how my DNA would get there. Really? This young lady here, her name is Bernita Sparks. Wow, she looked babysitted. <laughs> Why? No, I just said she looked fat. Mm. Uh, no, I don't know. This young lady, her name is Henrietta Wright. Go ahead, take a close look. No, no, no recollection at all. No recollection, or you just don't? I don't know her. I don't know her. But ugly, I don't know her. What? So, but ugly, I don't know her. Sorry, I don't know her. I mean, all of these people that you say you don't know through scientific evidence are all pointing the finger at Lonnie David Franklin Jr. Sit there and look at their faces, all staring at you, pointing that finger at you. Don't insult my intelligence. Please don't insult. I'm gray haired. I'm going bald. I'm getting close to the end here. I've done this a lot. Okay, just like you. You've been around. I respect your experience. You're probably the best mechanic uh, there is out there. You're good at what you do. And we've been doing this for a long time, too. So, what did you think of that? Did you notice how 
just casual and nonchalant he was. Soft-spoken. In fact, you can hardly hear him. He's like, murder? Oh, okay. And if it was somebody who's innocent, you'd think they'd be like, what? Murder? The fuck you talking about? But he's just like, oh, murder. Okay. And you can't see it, but I think it's Detective Kilcoin. He has these big 8 by 10 photos of the victims. And he lays each one of them in front of Lonnie. And he's like, do you remember her? How about her? Nope, nope, nope. And when he gets to the picture of Bernita Sparks, it's kind of hard to catch because he's like mumbling. But he goes, wow, she looks heavy set. And the detective said, what? And Lonnie goes, quote, I just say she look fat. So then he sees a picture of Henrietta and he goes, quote, she's but ugly. So not only is he a serial killer, but he's rude. And this adds on to the theme of how he objectifies women. He's literally being shown pictures of murder victims, and he's commenting on them being fat and ugly. It's incomprehensible. Then they ask him, like, how do you explain how your DNA got on these women? And he chuckles and laughs several times. He's just like, I don't know. And in the meantime, they're searching his house. And they have this circus going on outside. And the police go around interviewing neighbors and such. And they get some pretty interesting statements about him. I think this one is particularly telling. A female neighbor said, quote, He was a nice guy, but he was a freaky old man. He just talked nasty. He said he'd get women to do strange things in strange places with him. End quote. Hmm. So he's like 57, married, and brags to not only his friends, but it appears to be just anybody who will listen about his sexual exploits. While they're searching, the police find a bunch of interesting things. They find more than 800 pieces of evidence. Among these are 20 cameras, 15 camera phones, meaning, you know, a phone that can take a picture, hundreds of pictures of naked women, Hidden in the drywall in his garage was a Polaroid picture of Anitria with her chest exposed. In a refrigerator in the garage, they found an envelope with a picture of Janisha smiling and also showing her chest. They found a box with $10,000 in cash in a safe type thing with $7,000 in cash randomly strewn about among the tools and car parts were women's bras and underwear and it, it, this had to be such a bizarre sight they found 25 caliber ammunition in the house and they find two LAPD field office notebooks with the uh, Miranda warning printed inside of it so they're like, mm, was he using these to impersonate a police officer? Is Was this a, a ruse he used to get victims? And, and personally, I tend to doubt it because it seems like that he didn't need a ruse, that he had no problem getting women to get into his car with him with just his charming personality. So they found the gun used to kill Janisha. They found several other guns, some of which had the serial number scraped off, which of course is illegal. And they found a bunch of homemade porn. 
And in one of the feature films, it showed, um, it seems like the camera's positioned so that the woman doesn't know that she's being filmed, which is disturbing. Obviously, Wani has sex with this woman, but before the act itself, you see him either kissing or licking her on the breast. And it's like a certain thing that he does. And on many of the victims, that's where they get his DNA from. So that's really the thing that did him in. And then he pays this woman. It took a long time to get to trial. The defense kept dragging it out with all these delaying tactics. And the judge was getting mad. The families were getting mad. And the DAs were getting mad. Since it was a death penalty case, they had to be more careful about quality of his defense and so on. And, of course, the defense challenged the use of this familial DNA since it was relatively new. And they challenged the method that was used to collect it, you know, the pizza party. They said it was sneaky, which it was, but it was also brilliant. And it was perfectly legal because his crust and napkins were garbage. And the law says the garbage is fair game. So he's in jail all this time. And finally, the trial starts in February of 2016. And guess who his judge was? Kathleen Kennedy. Remember her? Yeah, I'm sure he was real pleased to see her again. The prosecution's case was built mainly around the DNA and the ballistics evidence. And the defense didn't really have much to work with. All they really did was try to prove reasonable doubt. And like I said, they challenged the DNA and they said that there could have been another killer. You know, that somebody else did it. Mistaken identity. One of the people who testified was Ray Davis, you know, Lonnie's so-called best friend. And he said that Lonnie regularly bragged of his sexual conquests. And he saw, he would estimate, about 70 pictures of naked women. And he said that according to Lonnie, some of these he'd picked up off the street. And he told him that he'd pick them up and have sex with them in a van or camper that was on his property. So then he told the court the following story. One time he saw Lonnie's white van in his, like, driveway or whatever. And he figured he'd go over and say hello. So he approaches the van, and the back door happened to be open, and he sees a girl inside sitting on the mattress, which doesn't everybody carry a mattress around in the back of your van? And Lonnie said to him, what are you doing? And Ray's like, well, I just came over to say hi. And Lonnie told him to get lost. Ray said he got a look at the girl inside, and he thinks it was Janisha, because he'd seen the billboard, and he thought he recognized her face. So on May 3rd, the jury deliberated for about a day. And of course, they find him guilty on all 10 counts of murder and the count of attempted murder for Nitria. And he just sat there looking stupid. The victim's families cried and hugged the detectives and they hugged the DAs and everybody seemed pleased. Now, they didn't charge him with these killings, but the police linked him to five other victims. And these are Sharon... I don't know how to say this, Dismook or Dismooky. She was 21. Her body was found on January 15th of 1984, which if he killed her, this would be his first murder. She was found on the bathroom floor of an abandoned gas station in South Central. 
covered with an old rug, and she had a rag stuffed in her mouth. She'd been shot in the chest twice at close range with a twenty-five caliber gun, and later on, ballistics tests would determine that it was the same gun that had killed Janisha. The second person was 28-year-old Inez Warren, and she was found on August 15th of 1988. Her body was laying in an alley off of Western Avenue, and an anonymous tipster called in and said that some guys had dropped her off. She'd been shot once in the chest, and she also had blunt force trauma to her head. She was breathing when the ambulance first got there, but unfortunately she died at the hospital without ever regaining consciousness. Another victim that has been tied to Lonnie Franklin, but her body was never found, was 31-year-old Rolenia Morris, and she vanished in September of 2005. She lived only a few blocks from him. And the reason they tied her to him was because her driver's license was found in his garage, along with two pictures of her in his refrigerator. And the fourth one was Georgia May Thomas, who was 43. She was found on a sidewalk on East 57th Street in December of 2000. Strangely, her body had been cleaned you know, like bathed and redressed after she had been shot twice in the chest. Her jeans were undone and her underwear was gone. She'd been killed with a twenty-five caliber gun, the bullet of which was found in Lonnie Franklin's garage. And finally, the only male victim connected to Lonnie Franklin was 36-year-old Thomas Steele. His body was found August 14th of 1986 near 71st Street. He was shot. I don't know why he's believed to be one of Franklin's victims, but the main theory is that he either saw something he shouldn't have or he was like collateral damage in a wrong place at the wrong time. So back to the trial. Remember Ingrid from Germany? They actually flew her there from Germany, and she testified in the penalty phase. She basically told the court how much her encounter with Lonnie and the other soldiers had affected her life. And she was a grandmother now, and she said she was still terrified and suffered from PTSD. On June 6th of 2016, the jury recommended the death penalty, and on August 10th, Judge Kennedy agreed. There were 17 people who came up and gave victim impact statements, family and friends of the victims. And I want to play for you what the judge says when she sentences him. This is worth listening to. So here is Judge Kennedy. Why did all of this happen? Why did you do all of these? All of these women were defenseless. They were not a threat to you in any way, shape, or form. And after thinking about it, pondering it, going over it in my mind, I've come to this conclusion, that it doesn't matter why. I can't think of anyone that I've encountered in all my many years in the criminal justice system that has committed the kind of monstrous and the number of monstrous crimes that you have. All of these people have been suffering and will continue to suffer, but hopefully, as many of them said, they feel they're going to receive some peace, and I hope 
that you are able to leave here with some peace today. But it's not vengeance. It's justice, Mr. Franklin. And so at this time, I will say that um, the defendant is not eligible for probation, and probation is denied. And so Lonnie Franklin Jr., for the first-degree murder of Deborah Jackson, as alleged, as alleged in count one, and the special circumstance of multiple murder, it is the judgment and sentence of this court that you shall suffer the death penalty. The total non-death sentence is life, plus 25 years to life, plus 14 years. All of that um, consecutive. The clip that they showed of this on YouTube, Bonnie's just sitting there look, looking like he's bored, but you can see his muscles and his jaw kind of twitching. And I did want to read in a couple things that the victims had to say. Unfortunately, I don't have any audio clips, but remember the second victim he was convicted of, Henrietta? She was the one he said was but ugly. Well, her daughter, Rochelle, spoke, and I like what she said. She looked right at Lloyd and said, quote, I would like to say what he did to this community that's what you call butt ugly. And actions that he took over and over and over again, he has made the rest of his life butt ugly. And I would like to say once again, thank you to everybody for putting this puzzle together to paint a picture of evil. And that's who he is. End quote. She's right about that. I have a few pictures of the victims. Uh, take a look at them. There's not one of them you could call butt ugly. These were all beautiful women. Lonnie Franklin is the, the but ugly one. So Anitria made a statement, and as usual, she had a good quote. She told him, quote, I really think you are truly a piece of evil. You're a Satan representative, end quote. I like that, Satan representative. So 52-year-old Laura Moore comes forward, and she was given permission to speak at his sentencing. She got in touch with the police in 2010 after she saw him on the news and said, hey, I want to tell you about something that happened to me. And I don't know what year this happened, but she remembers getting into a car with Lonnie Franklin and he shot her in the chest. Sound familiar? So she fell, fell out of the car and fortunately there was somebody nearby who called the police. And she said she remembers laying there and the ambulance coming. And she was like looking up and she saw Lonnie drive by slowly watching this, you know, whole scene unfolding. And according to Laura, she was waiting for a bus at a bus stop. And he came by and said that she shouldn't be standing out here because somebody will think she's a prostitute, which is rude and strange to say to somebody who is standing at a bus stop because that's what bus stops are for. So she kept waiting and waiting, probably thinking, oh my God, bus, hurry up. And he just kept driving past, keeps offering a ride. She keeps telling him no. This dude just does not take no for an answer. So finally she got in his car after checking to make sure that he didn't have any weapons. So they go down an alley, and then he shot her six times and laughed. 
and she opened the door and fell out. And she said now that she doesn't trust anybody, which you can't blame her. And she somehow found out that some of her friends knew him way back from in school. And they said he was weird. And this incident, like his encounter with Anitria, really gives us some insight into his character. Because he really seems to have this thing with prostitutes. His word, not mine. I know they like to be called sex workers. He supposedly talked about them all the time to his friends and badmouthed them. He referred to them as crackheads. He accused Laura of looking like one when all she's doing is waiting for a bus. And I'm going to get into this in a little bit. But remember this when we discuss his psychology. Then Laura said that he shot her and laughed like this is hilarious to him. So on August 17th of 2016, he was 64 and he was put on death row at San Quentin. But he would never get to meet, I guess it would be lethal injection there. They don't have the gas chamber anymore. And on March 28th of 2020, he was found unresponsive in his cell and pronounced dead at 7.43 p.m. His cause of death is unknown. Suicide was ruled out. Really, who cares? But I like to find out everything I can whenever I'm researching a case. And to analyze him or attempt to, everybody knows I'm not a a psychologist. I just like to analyze people for fun. I like what Anitria said about him being a Satan representative. And honestly, I don't put, I don't like to put my personal beliefs in here, but I just personally don't believe in Satan or demons or evil. Or I think that evil is just an abstract concept that people use to describe behavior that they don't understand. But the things he did were absolutely horrible. And I think the big question is, what happened to him between high school and the army? It's like all of a sudden he was, I don't know if I want to use the word good, but I guess decent, a decent enough kid, I suppose. And then he turned 16 and he was arrested for stealing cars and burglary. And it's like all of a sudden something went wrong somewhere. And then, of course, we have what he did in Germany. And he seems to, I think I mentioned this a few times, look at the way he objectifies women. When he was looking at the pictures of the victims in the police station, and he said, he said somebody was butt ugly, somebody's fat. And then he made the statement to, I think it was to Ray, but these are my girls. Very proprietary, like their possessions or objects. And another thing that's kind of puzzling, the crime scenes themselves, the way they were disposed of, and I mean that when I say disposed of, they were literally dumped like they were trash, like thrown away like they were pieces of garbage, or actually some of them were in dumpsters. But all of them were covered with something, like a couple had mattresses over them, somebody had a car part on her, rugs, etc., and I know from studying profiling that when a killer covers the victim, it's a sign of remorse or regret. So it's like we're getting a mi mixed signal from him. Like this person is trash, garbage, useless. But on the other hand, I kind of feel bad about this, which just doesn't make sense. 
For a while, I was thinking that he reminded me a lot of Gary Ridgway, you know, the Green River Killer. All of Ridgway's victims were, most of them were sex workers. And uh, later on, he said that he felt like he was on a mission to clean up the streets, so to speak. Like somebody appointed him judge, jury, and executioner. But with Anitria and Laura, we see that they're not sex workers. They're not drug addicts. They're just women going about their own business. And it seems like once he set his sights on somebody, like both Anitria and Laura told him, no, I don't want to ride with your shady ass. I'm not interested. See, you get lost. He just does not take no for an answer. So he doesn't seem to be punishing sex workers. I don't think he sees himself as like the moral police. It seems like he's punishing women for just being women. That's the message I get. And this is really important. You know how he took their underwear and he had all the Polaroids and he kept a bunch of their jewelry. These are either trophies or souvenirs. And I know the two, two terms are often used interchangeably, but there is actually a difference between them. And I have to address this because it's important. The difference is not in the actual object itself, but in its psychological significance to the offender. A souvenir, if you think of the word and what it means. So you get to go to the beach and you get a souvenir that reminds you of the beach, like a little bottle of sand. Um, I went to Myrtle Beach once and I had sand in my car for like five years because I was too lazy to clean it out. So that's kind of like a souvenir, a postcard, t-shirt, something that you look back on fondly and remember your trip or where you got it from. Trophies are a little bit different. If you think of a trophy, it's probably like a little statue, um, like, look, I'm a good bowler or soccer player or whatever. And hunters, um, you know how they have the deer heads hanging on their walls, like, look what I caught. I'm a big man. I shot a deer or whatever. And I think he used the underwear and pictures more as trophies because he made it a point to collect them and he made it a point to show them off. Look at my girls. Look at all this underwear I have. To me, that just screams disgusting pervert. But to him, for whatever reason, it signifies, look at all these girls. What a ladies man I am. I am just the shit. So I think that was the significance to him. And also to extend this metaphor a little bit, the women themselves were trophies. Like if he could have literally cut their heads off and hung them on the wall of his, his garage, he would have done it. And he would have put their name and the date that he killed them on a little plaque under them. That's the kind of mentality he had. When he went out in his numerous kinds of stolen cars that he had, he was hunting big game, literally. And another thing, with the nicknames, droopy titties, etc. He's so gross. He's literally reducing women to body parts. And I was thinking, what made him tick? Why did he feel the need to kill women? And this is what I came up with. Feel free to disagree. It's, it's kind of crazy. I know, but this is just my own thoughts. I've never seen any kind of psychological reports or evaluations on him. 
besides the one from the army that was like three sentences long. I think that he had a sex addiction. And for more information on this, I turned to every hypochondriac's favorite website, WebMD. And it says that sex addiction isn't a diagnosable condition like alcohol or drug addiction, but that excess sexual behavior can develop like the other types of addiction. It says that somebody who has this may have a compulsive need to be sexually stimulated, and this desire often interferes with their ability to live their daily life, and it lists some behaviors that sex addicts engage in, which are frequent sex acts, uh, check, prostitution or use of prostitutes, check, watching porn, Check. He not only did that, he made his own also. Masturbation, sexual fantasy. I think everybody does that. Exhibition or voyeurism. I think we can consider that a yes since we know that he had sex with these people in all kinds of places. Somebody with a sex addiction may feel compelled to seek out sex with new partners, even if it means cheating on a partner or having an affair. And we know that even though he'd been married for a long time, he had numerous girlfriends. And we also know that he had girlfriends going back to, like, middle school. And it says in some extreme cases, people may engage in criminal acts like stalking, rape, or child molestation. And I think rape and murder fit the bill for that. So what screamed out to me among all of these clues was the disposal of the bodies of the victims. Remember I said about the mixed message, like I'm dumping them like they're garbage, but also I'm kind of ashamed. And I think that he had a big sex addiction and he saw women as not humans or people, but literally body parts. Not to be crude, but literally somewhere to put his dick. And he felt both an overwhelming need to own these women, so to speak, but also when he was done with the act, meaning raping and killing, he subconsciously felt disgusted with himself. But it was like so deep in his brain that he couldn't even tell that it was there, it was going on. So he subconsciously projected the blame or his self-disgust onto the victims, and that's why he covered them. I know it's kind of out there, I admit, but, you know, I, I just keep coming back to that theory. I happened upon this by mistake, and it has nothing to do with Lonnie Franklin, but I read this book called How to Catch a Killer by Katherine Ramsland. I highly recommend it as anything that she writes. She's an excellent writer. She's a forensic psychologist, I've been reading her stuff for years. I'm friends with her on Facebook. She's just awesome. So I'm reading this book, and she interviewed Dennis Rader, you know, uh, BTK. And you know the saying, nobody understands a serial killer like another ser serial killer. Well, Dennis says, and I'll read you this right from the book. It's, it's a direct quote. Quote, I think it can be that a man goes fishing and sometimes is not very lucky. It may be some social issues. He's busy at home or work. I did not fit the normal profile of a serial killer. 
Why were there gaps of so many years? Bottom line, I was always on the prowl, end quote. So he had taken a break himself, not as long as Lonnie Franklin's, but a break for a couple years. And he was asked about it and he was like, no, we don't take breaks. We're serial killers. We're always on the prowl. And I think it was the same with Lonnie. Fortunately for Dennis Rader, he was a lot smarter than Lonnie and he was pretty good at analyzing himself. You know, why he did the things he did. And he actively would think about, why did I do this? Why am I like this? And if somebody interviewed him, he would, would tell them or he would do his best at it. And he had this concept that he called cubing. And think of what a cube is. It's a three-dimensional thing, you know. And he said that he just figured out how to compartmentalize his personality and feelings so that he could at any one time project any one of these personalities onto the world whether it's Dennis the husband, Dennis the church president, or Dennis the serial killer. And I think that's what Lonnie did. You know, good old uh, friendly Lonnie, Lonnie the pervert, trolling the streets for women, Lonnie the killer. I think you see where I'm going with this. And this episode is dedicated to Deborah, Henrietta, Barbara, Bernita, Mary, Lucretia, Monique, Princess Valerie, Janisha, and Anitria. Class dismissed.